Her hair was long and dark, shimmering with a, a glow that refracts the sunlight and dances in the wind. At least on, on most days, that is. It's strange to see her hair disheveled, spun like a sparrow's nest or frame like a fisherman's rope. But, oh, how it matches so perfectly. Her eyes the color of wine and lids drooping like a rose run through its bloom. It's so different. So different than her, her usual her usual face of determination. It's so different than her customary smile and her, her warm greeting of shalom in the marketplace to all the tradespeople. Her clothes typically were well-kept, but now they're just a, a mess. They were torn and wrinkled and ripped by the fingers of force, opening up new openings exposing previously unexposed limbs. And there on her skin, you can see it, blotting bruises like ink spilled on parchment. The shame of saliva, it polka dots her robes. And the, the brute force of, of violence, it skins her, her knees and her elbows. And the bleeding is just a testimony of their brutality. They call it righteousness, observing the Mosaic law, keeping in accordance with it. They said, well, we, we caught her uh, red-handed, caught in the act. And so, uh, you know, we, we decided to drag her here like a farm plow. I thought it was fitting, right, with the, uh, the festival of booths we just finished. And uh, oh, we, we didn't come empty-handed either. Unfortunately, uh, there's uh, construction underway in Jerusalem, and stones are, are easily accessible of good quality and cut. And, you know, if you don't have your own, you can just pick them up off the ground. They'll do the trick just fine against flesh and blood and bone. But uh, a moment later, the rocks and stones, they pelt the earth instead. The particles of dust rise upwards the rocks and stones leaving craters in the ground. And then as the religious elite, as they slither back to their dens, as the stonemasons return to their stones and the bakers return to their bread and the coppersmiths return to their copper, as the midwives return to their mothers and the potters return to their pottery, as the soldiers return to their stations, his question still rings out. Where are your accusers? That's what he said, this question, to a woman having a really bad day. By the look of things, it appears like your day might not be uh, quite as bad. It might be going a bit better than this woman in John chapter 8. But, you know, looks can be deceiving. And it's easy to assume and be like a spectator to, to form some sort of understanding or assumption or, or even an accusation. But today, as we explore this question in our Questions of Jesus sermon series, we're not going to approach it 
like a spectator. You know, we're not going to approach it like a like a baker caked in flour, pressed shoulder to shoulder with the people in the crowd. We're, we're not going to approach it like the midwife who should probably be getting back to her mother's. We're, we're not going to approach it like a Pharisee with a stone or a rock in his grasp. No. To grasp the question and all it means, this ancient story must become our story where we see it from the weepy eyes of a woman having a really bad day. As if the question were put to us so that we must answer, where are your accusers? For many of us, uh, to answer that question, we don't really have to look very far. You might think, well, where are your accusers? Well, maybe, maybe you married him. Or, you know, maybe she shares your bed, at least when uh, you're on your best behavior. Or or maybe they call you into their office to run a a vibrant highlighter across all your mistakes. Or or maybe they refuse your cooking because it's too spicy or too gourmet or, or it's not the fish sticks that they demanded. Maybe your accusers pressure you into decisions and lifestyle choices you might not normally make. For we know that accusations, they easily influence our our perceptions of reality. Where are your accusers? You know, accusations can be quite troubling. Sometimes they're flat out 100% wrong. Sometimes they're spot on. And sometimes, whether we like it or not, they hold slivers of truth that actually sound rather condemning. Once a a trio of drug thieves was arrested and accused of grave desecration. The accusation, though, it confused the drug thieves. Grave desecration? What what, what are you talking about? Why are you charging us with this? They had broken into a home in Silver Springs, Florida, and discovered three jars of cocaine. They took it home and snorted the contents. But it turns out that the jars were, in fact, actually urns and they were snorting the cremated remains of the homeowner's husband and two dogs definitely spot on with that accusation or how about winnebago the the motorhome manufacturer winnebago was once accused of false advertisement when a woman purchased a new 32 foot winnebago motorhome from a dealership in oklahoma On the way home from a a football game, because like, what what else do you do in Oklahoma? She drove onto the highway, set the cruise control, and then she left her seat to go and make herself a sandwich. Needless to say, the motorhome veered off the highway and crashed. The woman sued Winnebago for, are you ready? Not writing in the owner's manual that a person can't actually leave the driver's seat while the cruise control was on. Now, a a jury in Oklahoma awarded her $1.7 million plus a brand new motorhome. A legit accusation, apparently. And then in 2017, a French businessman sued Uber for $48 million, accusing the ride-sharing company's app for playing a role in the breakup of his marriage. The man said that he borrowed his wife's cell phone and used it to log on to the Uber app. He claimed that a glitch in the app caused it to send notifications of his whereabouts to his wife's phone, even after he had logged off. And apparently, 
some of his movements caused a problem with his wife. And their marriage ended in divorce. Like, sounds like Uber is the least of your problems, bro. But, you know, these are quite the accusations. Perhaps true, perhaps false, or with slivers of truth. But, you know, when it comes to accusing, whether true or false or with slivers of truth, I think sometimes some of the most acute and critical accusations, they take place behind my eyes and between my ears. In other words, I can be my most accusing accuser. Like, Jeremy, you're no good. You're a failure. You're a loser. Just look at everyone else compared to you. You know what's another word for accuser? Fault finder. And when I become immersed in finding the faults in others, and when I become utterly obsessed with finding the faults in me, it can lead to a whole host of mental and social and relational and spiritual, I mean, you name it, problems. It creates a warped and distorted sense of reality, guilt and shame and condemnation. Like, this is who I am. I will never be better. I'm terminal in my struggle, stage four incurable in my sin. But when we examine this question of Jesus and what follows... Where are your accusers? The story takes on a much different turn than a Winnebago on cruise control. John chapter 8, verse 3 says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. This is the day after the festival of booths in Jerusalem, a festival celebrating the the miraculous provision and sustenance of God for the Israelite people as they're wandering through the wilderness. And uh, this, this mentions Jesus returning to the Mount of Olives, but then heading back to the temple. So he leaves the olive trees. He heads west across the, the Kidron Valley, back into Jerusalem, back to the temple. And it says, a crowd soon gathered and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, so the, the religious elites, the, the spiritual leaders of the people, the big dogs of the faith, they brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. I mean, I mean, what, what are they, the, the sex police? Apparently here, allegedly this, man, this woman had been caught having sex with a man who was not her husband. And so they put her in front of the crowd, it says. Imagine just how they thrust her forward, dragging her like a farm plow through the crowd, hands clasped tightly around her upper extremities, fingers pressed deeply into the tender skin of her underarms. Is she fully clothed? Can you feel the humiliation? I can see by the text that her hair must have been disheveled, spun like a sparrow's nest fraying like a, a fisherman's rope, her, her eyes the color of wine, and lids drooping like a, a rose run through its bloom. Because when, when did they catch her? I mean, it, it doesn't tell us, but when did they catch her? Maybe this morning or, or maybe last night? If so, was she kept in prison through the night? Her accusation, though, it leads to a whole host of other questions in my mind. Like, first of all, how do religious professionals exactly catch 
a woman in adultery? Like, what are they doing there? What's going on? Or, or furthermore, adultery is rather hard to do alone. Like, it takes two tango. So where's Mr. Dreamboat? Oh, oh, she's solo here, thrust in front of the crowd, there beside the temple colonnades and the smoke of sacrifice rising from the altar. It smells like a barbecue. And all their eyes feast on her, seeing the disgrace and shame through the tears in her clothes. That is, if she had any. It's precisely the worst nightmare of any woman, but of also of any father or husband or family in the ancient Near East, in a world that was bound up by honor and shame, in a cultural context where a child is not told that's wrong, but instead, shame on you. Certain acts, they bring shame while others bring honor to the family. But here as a daughter, as a sister, as a mother, as a wife, as a fiance, filthy with sexual accusations, you're disgraced, you're shamed. Your clothes are ripped apart like your family's honor. Teacher, they said to Jesus in verse 4, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Um, well, uh, first of all, guys, that's uh, actually not what the law says. Let's take a look. Leviticus 20.10. If a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the man and the woman who have committed adultery must be put to death. So where's Mr. Dreamboat? I mean, you made the accusation yourself. And I quote, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Therefore, Mr. Dreamboat would have been seen and identifiable, I presume. And, and if you're so zealous for the law, you know, being the sex police and all, wanting to put people to death, where's the dude? Clear, clearly, their concern is not about the law, but rather the public humiliation of Jesus. I mean, they work in the all-too-familiar story. We've heard it time and time again of the combo of sex and a woman and public humiliation and sin and a, a double standard. They didn't bring in a murderer or a thief, you know, one who, like, stole, like, three, three urns mistakenly thinking it was cocaine and bring him forward. No, 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 no. They bring a woman caught in adultery. Mr. Dreamboat, he's allowed to disappear or escape. There's no effort to help her. Their plan is just to use her and then try and kill her. She's just a prop, a prop in their plan because their aim is to set Jesus up. I mean, that, that's what it says in verse six. They were trying to trap him. Or you could also translate that as test him. It's the same word used to describe what the devil does to Jesus in the desert in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They were trying to test him or here, trap him into saying something they could use against him. And you see this all over our world today. Like you see this in politics. You see this in marriage counseling. You see this with teenagers and with global leaders. Digging up dirt and entrapping, defaming, smearing, canceling, assassinating character. Almost always for power or manipulation. Almost always in front of some audience too. And we do it, I think, to make ourselves feel better. 
about ourselves. Because radical people like Jesus upend and upturn our worlds and our sense of control. And, and that's what we're after with all our fault finding, isn't it? Control. I, uh, I once told a, a girl that she had beaver teeth and that she looked like a football player in her headgear. And now before you throw your stones, she was my sister, and I was probably responding to something way worse that, that she would have said. But I think in all my beaver teeth headgear fault finding, I was the one who was really jacked up. Yeah, no kidding, right? But makes sense. I lack control, and so I accuse or smear or cancel or dig up dirt on others to assume some semblance of control or power over. And in John chapter 8 here, I mean, how can we miss it? Like the religious Jewish elite here, they, they lack control or power over their own land. They're an occupied people reminders of the occupying Roman military might and their paganism, their idol worship, their brute hostility and pride at every corner in the marketplace, even beneath the colonnades and pillars of the temple of Jerusalem. And in John chapter 8 here, it's, it's quite the spectacle. It's a tinderbox ready to ignite. It's a powder keg ready to blow. Stones are about to fly here in this supposedly sacred place. The temple, uh, by measurements, is, the area is about 35 acres. That's roughly uh, 23 football fields. And around three sides of the temple area, there was a long covered walkway. Now, connected to this walkway on the north end of the temple area, Herod the Great, or I, I like to call him Herod the Great Baby Killer from the Christmas story, he had constructed a large military fort called the Antonia Fortress, where some of the occupying Romans would bunker. Now, Herod knew that civil unrest had often began in the temple area, so he ensured that there was adequate access between the fort and the temple area via this covered walkway. Now, it, it was said that around the time of Jewish festivals, like the Festival of Booths, which was just celebrated, armed Roman soldiers would patrol, either beneath or above or, or both, beneath or above or both on this covered walkway through the crowds keeping a sharp eye out for any unrest. Now, we're talking about legion-sized Roman forces, 4,000 to 6,000 soldiers. And this, this is to say that the entire scene that's unfolding around Jesus with this woman supposedly caught in adultery and the religious big dogs attempting to get Jesus to pronounce a death sentence on a woman, it's all taking place under the watchful eye of the Roman military might. The Roman military might that decrees only the Romans are permitted to execute someone. I mean, that's what it says in John 18, 31. Only the Romans are permitted to execute someone. So then such a verbal announcement from Jesus, like, yeah, kill her. It would have caused quite the outcry and uh, triggered enough commotion that the Romans surely would have arrested him. Because, well, only the Romans are permitted to execute someone. 
So either the Romans will accuse and charge him of instigating insurrection and unlawful capital punishment, or the Jewish religious elite will accuse and charge him publicly with trashing the Mosaic law. Either way, Jesus loses and his opponents win. But Jesus stooped down, it says in verse 6b, and wrote in the dust with his finger. Wait, wait, what what is he doing? Like tic-tac-toe or sudoku? Or maybe he's writing what the law really says. Something like, uh, bring the man and the woman. Bring them both. Or maybe he's jotting down their sins. You know, like a, a counter accusation. Whatever it is, this is the only time that Jesus writes in the Bible. Maybe Jesus is reminding them that in Exodus 31, God wrote the Ten Commandments with his finger. In other words, like, yo, that's me. Maybe he's just delaying, you know, trying to to build anticipation for dramatic effect. But consider this. And now it, it might... It might sound radical, but, you know, we live in a world where people drive minivans or, or Winnebago's on cruise control and get up and try and make sandwiches. But consider this. What if Jesus actually wrote something like death or kill her or stone her with stones? I mean, he always opted for faithful, strict obedience to the Mosaic law. He even came to fulfill it. Verse 7 says, they kept demanding an answer. Now, kind of like the, the seagulls on Finding Nemo, but instead, mine, 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 mine. It's what, 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 what do you say? So he stood up again. And here, like having made his judgment and perhaps writing something in the sand like death or kill her or stone her with stones, he he then announces his method of execution. All right. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. By doing this, Jesus puts a a name and a face on everyone in the crowd. Like, go ahead and kill her. Stone her with stones. You know, in fact, let let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Ah, but you see, what this does is it puts them in a bind. Because in this honor-shame culture, if a dude steps out of the crowd claiming to be sinless, immediate shame. Because they know the words of Isaiah. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. And Ecclesiastes, not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. So who in their right mind would dare claim to be sinless? Suddenly and dramatically, the entire scene is changed. From a position of total political and institutional weakness, Jesus manages to turn the tables on the woman's accusers. I mean, any culture, one of the quickest ways to get into trouble is to, uh, to humiliate powerful people, not to mention doing it publicly and on their own turf. And yet this is precisely what Jesus does. The accusing religious elite, they, they had planned to humiliate Jesus. 
they were put to shame before the crowd, before the Romans, before those they sought to control and have power over. The accusers are now under pressure and each of them must make a decision. In the ancient Near East, in a sticky situation like this, it was, it was natural for the people to turn to the oldest person present. For wisdom, I don't know, maybe he's like, you, you've, been, you've been alive this long, you, you must be doing something right. But you, know, you also have to be careful with that kind of logic. Like grandma might have good things to say, but you know, grandma's style choices, her wardrobe you know, advice might be stuck in the 1940s. But hey, you know, maybe it's coming back. I probably wouldn't know. I, you know, I, it's not my area of expertise. I just febreze it and I'm good. But here in our scene, all eyes of the crowd, they must have turned to see if the elder, you know, with his flowing beard and alligator skin and ever increasing comb over, they probably turned to see if he dares to accept or respond to Jesus's challenge. But meanwhile, it says that Jesus stooped down again and wrote in the dust, tic-tac-toe, sudoku, maybe writing kill her or death or I don't know. But whatever the case, he chooses not to watch the public humiliation of the accusers. He doesn't gloat. He doesn't twist the knife. He doesn't shout out booyah like I might. No. He takes no pleasure in humiliating them. He simply wants to save the woman. And verse 9 says, When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, and this is the first time that she's even been addressed. I mean, no one even asked her how her day was going or what's going on. Was this even true? Was this consensual? No, nothing. No one's asked her anything. She's never had a, chase, a chance to present her case. Never had a chance to, to, told how, to tell how she thought the story went. And Jesus asks, where are your accusers? The way he asks it in the Greek is a, it's a very polite way to speak. Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you. A few minutes earlier, the, the terrified woman expected to be at the receiving end of rocks and a painful death. But suddenly her accusers are angry at Jesus rather than her. At great cost, he has shifted their hostility from her to himself. And he doesn't even know her name. Sure, Jesus's opponents, they will be back with a bigger stick, one that's shaped like a cross. And sure, Jesus will, is in the process here of getting hurt because of what he is doing for her. But she is the recipient of a costly demonstration of unexpected love, a love that saves her life. The woman's sin, if she indeed was caught in the act of adultery, is no way diminished in his willingness to get hurt to save her. You may say, but she's a sinner. She's unfaithful, disgusting in her sexual wickedness. But that's what I love about Jesus. Jesus is not repulsed by anyone. Instead, Jesus shows her the life-changing power of costly love. I think it proves to be an insight into Jesus' own understanding of his own suffering, of what his own death will do to bear and forgive and renew and restore. 
in verse 10, he, he said, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. He neither condemns nor overlooks her self-destructive lifestyle, but go and sin no more. Jesus alone was entitled to condemn, and he did not condemn. But neither did he condone. He leaves her with a charge to change her lifestyle. Now, looking at the larger picture, Jesus accepts the sexual code of the Old Testament. He, he upholds the sexual ethics of the biblical tradition, like Leviticus 20. If a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the man and the woman who have committed adultery must be put to death. But here, Jesus removes its penalty. And you may ask, well, how can he do that? How can he just remove the penalty? Because he will pay the penalty. Maybe you thought this was a story about a woman caught in adultery. A woman in a faraway world of the past where folks didn't know much about health or proper hygiene. Maybe you thought this story was a story about religious fanatics with a bone to pick about sexual activity. You know, dudes too blind to see the errors of their own way. Maybe you thought this story was a story about honor and shame culture and death by bricks and Sudoku in the dust. Maybe you thought this story was a story about capital punishment or hashtag me too or the ills of a patriarchal society. Maybe you thought this story was a story about accusations and a woman having a really bad day. Maybe so. But this story, this entire story is a story about you and about me and Jesus interpreting his own cross. Whether you are caught in adultery or caught snorting the cremated remains of a husband and two dogs, the reality is all of us, like sheep, have strayed away. Not a, a single person on earth is always good and never sins. Where are your accusers? Honestly, Jesus, they're still here sometimes behind my eyes and between my ears. Didn't even one of them condemn you? Actually, in this case, yeah. I sure feel condemned. But even though others might accuse and condemn us, and even though we might fault find and condemn ourselves entirely, who Jesus is and what he has done by bearing our burden and taking our sin, it bears our accusation and it takes our condemnation. And the deep intrinsic truth of his response to the woman is the same deep intrinsic truth to us. I don't condemn you, period. I don't condemn you, period. Ah, but I say to myself, Jeremy, like, you're no good. You're a failure. You're a loser. Just look at everybody else compared to you. Shut up, man. I don't condemn you, period. But this is who I am. I will never be better. I'm terminal in my struggle. Stage four, incurable in my sin. You ever heard about the, the, the way maker, the miracle worker, the father, son, and Holy Spirit, Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, the one who creates ways through, through ways that were no ways. I don't condemn you, period. Or how about, well, uh, you know, uh, 
you see there, there's this app called Uber and uh, my wife, she, she like, she found out. Yeah, I get it. That's stupid. Go and be reconciled. Change your ways. Repent and follow me. And get this. Don't forget, I don't condemn you, period. Uh, okay. Um, but, but like, how do I say this? Um, you know how like cocaine can sort of look like someone's ashes? Uh, no. But I don't condemn you, period. Okay, yeah, but seriously, dude, like, I thought the cruise control was actually something like autopilot. Okay, like, actually, I, I do condemn you. No, no, of course not. No, because you were worth it. No matter who you are or what you've done or how you've been accused or who you've accused, Jesus says you're worth it. You're worth dying for, and he already did it, so uh, sorry, you're worth it. You're worth it. So worth it that these, these last five words should cause you to change everything in response. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Amen.